You may be seated. I have a message that, this morning that I want to share with you briefly in the remaining time that we have. That's so important because it's about faith that transcends generations. And we have a generation today that needs to know that there's a God who's alive and cares and does the miraculous for this very generation. You know, um, the truth is this, is that there is always going to be an influencer above all the other influencers. And scripture has made it very clear to us that parental faith is the greatest influence in the faith development of the next generation. This is a principle of truth that's from cover to cover in our Bibles. And perhaps really maybe the, one of the greatest experiences that I've ever had as a parent of our four children is that all of them love the Lord. And knowing that they love and have a relationship with the Lord is one of the most comforting things that I could ever have. It really raises the question, is, are there, is there something that we can do as parents in this generation to influence our children to follow and serve the Lord in their generation? Is there, are there particular markers that, mean, uh, that make a bigger difference than others? How is faith cultivated from generation to generation? Well, the Bible talks about this, and this morning I want to bring attention to three aspects of parental influence that transcends from generation to generation. Those three things are the truth of parental influence, the priority of parental influence, and the faith of parental influence. Heavenly Father, this morning... Would you speak through your servant, Lord, your word in such a way, O oh God, that we as your people not only hear those words, but we hear the life of those words that are found it by your spirit in your word. And God, I pray that you will do this with words that speak encouragement, faith, and hope for this generation in Jesus' name. Everyone said... As a parent, I'm going to influence my children to draw closer to God or further away from God. I'm going to influence my children in ways that I will then begin to see them live out and on occasion I'll be able to say, that just looks too familiar. That can either draw great joy to your heart or can cause you great fear. When we begin to think about the influence that we have, our kids are picking up many of the behavioral patterns that we are exhibiting in our own lives. What if you only had your children to influence them for three or four years, and then for the next 37 years, the Egyptian culture that didn't fear God had your children to raise them? What would you do then during those three or four years? The Bible tells us that that was the story of Moses. It says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians during those, 20, those 37 years following the three or four years that his parents had him. There was no room for a personal omnipotent God in the eyes of the Egyptian culture. And that culture was the culture in which Moses was predominantly growing up in the middle of all of this, 
In that story, you realize that Moses has the opportunity to be the world leader. Egypt was the greatest influential country in the world at the time, and he was arising because of the place and where he was. He could have literally been the next world leader. But what we see here is that he chose rather to follow the, the one true God and to be a part of the people of God. What made the difference in Moses' life that he would make such a choice as an adult when he had been growing up in a, in a culture that had been so ungodly? The culture in which we live today is increasingly hostile to a biblical Christian faith. And it becomes more challenging and more fearful for every generation. And some I know today are fearful for their children or their children's children because of the influences that sometimes surround. And I want to say to you today, God is here. God is here. And we can lean on him. Moses' parents, their names were Amram and Jochebed. And these two were very, very faithful people. They loved God, and they instilled a love for God in their children, and it made a difference that would cause Moses and his siblings to be able to follow him all the days of their life. So can we influence our children to know God that way? Certain fish teachers used to have a Sunday morning little fish class for all the different types of animals that would come to the fish classes. In this particular class, it was a crab class, and every particular Sunday, these little crablings would walk in sideways, and there they would instruct these crabs how to walk straight every single day. So they would teach them how to walk straight for an hour during that little Sunday morning crabling class. But then they would go home, and sure enough, the next week they would come walking in sideways again. They did that over and over and over again. They studied pedagogy. They studied all kinds of influence points, trying to understand how to make these crablings walk straight instead of sideways. Finally, a whale of a fish arose one day and said, how foolish you are that you can think that you can spend one hour trying to teach them how to walk straight when they follow the patterns of what they go to at their home every single day. You know, the reality is, is that we have an incredible influence as parents, and sometimes we don't understand the influence we have. Countless studies have been done, sociological studies have been done, and they reveal to us what the Bible has taught us. Longitudinal studies, in fact, one that I just read here recently, that began in 1970 and went on for 35 years. And it showed the incredible influence. What we know today from study after study after study is that there is no single greater influence of the development of a child's attitudes and actions than their parents. Parents have the highest influence of the development of faith from generation to generation. The enemy tries to make us think that we really don't have that much influence. They want us to, the enemy wants us to think that Others have greater influence. Their best friend, their, their, their uh, media uh, capacities, their influences that come from school, all those other influences. Parents have a greater influence. It's three times the influence of your pastors. It's twice the influence of their best friend. It's six times the influence of social media. You say, I don't believe that. Well, just longitudinal study after longitudinal study brings this to four. And it's true. The Bible shows us over and again the amazing influence that we have as parents. 
If you stop and think about it, it's parents that have the majority time with the influence of their children. So we should never underestimate the influence that we have as parents. I'll say it like this. We want a better world. We need better homes. It's, it's a fact. It's a truth. The truth is that parental uh, capacities have a higher influence than everything else. And it's never too late to exercise that influence. I want to talk about the priority of biblical influence from a biblical perspective for just a minute. Generations are important. Every generation has responsibility for the next generation. The emphasis is found even in the very, very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. We find this influence. In the, book of, in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word that we translate as generations or descendants or successors. It's the Hebrew word toledot. Um, 34 out of the 39 times it's found in my English Standard Version of the Bible that I have here in my hand today, it's translated as generations. In the book of Genesis, there are 11 Toledotes. In fact, the word Toledot, when translated into Greek, it transliterates as Ganea. And when you transliterate the word Ganea from Greek to English, you get the word Genesis. That's actually the title of the book. It's talking about the importance of generations. From the very outset, there are 11 Toledotes in the book of Genesis. It starts with the Toledot of Adam, or the Toledot of, of uh, creation. Most of the time, the word Toledot, it, it usually is speaking about who brought someone forth, who brought someone forth, and so on. Most of the time, it's a who, but only one time there's a Toledot, and it's actually talking about God creating the heavens and the earth, and that's a what. But it's usually about a who. And what I'm trying to make point here, here this morning is this. God has a priority from one generation to bring forth the next generation. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9 says this. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5, 6, and 7 says it like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in, the, in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We know Proverbs 22 and 6 Train up a child in the way he should go. Ephesians 6 and 4 instructs fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The story of Moses illustrates an example here of faith that speaks to the next generation. It speaks to the progression of faith from generation to generation. The story is told in the book of Exodus. It says that in the opening part of Exodus that Moses, excuse me, that Joseph had, had died. It had been 200 years since Joseph had arisen to influence and, and uh, taken a great seat of influence in, in Egypt. And a new Pharaoh had arisen and had forgotten that there was this God who had been so merciful to the Egyptian people through his exercise of working, even through the wisdom of Joseph. And this 
new Pharaoh had arisen and the number of Hebrews were growing immensely in population and he was worried that if they had rebelled they would overcome them because of their numbers alone. He spoke to the midwives who were uh, Hebrew midwives giving, uh, helping and giving birth to children and said, here's a new law. Every male child shall be aborted. Every male Hebrew child shall be aborted. Well, these women feared God more than they feared the, the, uh, the, the Pharaoh. And so they said to Pharaoh, um, when they were called on the carpet as to why they were letting these children live, they, they said, well, the Hebrew women are just more vigorous in childbirth, and they give birth before we can do anything about it. And so he said, well, okay, then a new law. All of the male Hebrew boys that are born uh, will be thrown into the Nile River to be fed to the crocodiles. Well, I added the crocodiles, but we know they're there. Can you imagine being a parent living in that world? And you've got a child that you're carrying, and you're wondering what's going to happen to this child. Amram and Jochebed were just those parents. And then their story, we learn this, that they had two other children, Aaron and Miriam. And now they have this one who is born named, uh, that we know as Moses. And when he is born, they keep him and they hide him for three months and after they couldn't hide him any longer, she took some uh, reeds and she made a basket out of it and she patched it with bitumen like a, um, a water seal and she took the child and put it in the basket and she went down to the water's edge there next to Pharaoh's home where his daughter would be bathing with her handmaidens and she laid the basket in the reeds so that it wouldn't float down the river but get stuck. Miriam, who was his Moses' older sister, she did what any normal older sister would do. Whether her mom instructed or not, we don't know, but she went to see what would happen. Sure enough, as uh, Pharaoh's daughter was bathing there in the water's edge, she discovered the child crying, and so she picks up the child and she pulls it out of the water, and there she begins to realize at that moment, this is a Hebrew child. At that moment, Miriam comes up and says, hey, would you like for me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child? And she said, that's a good idea. Why don't you go do that? So Miriam turns around and goes back and gets her mom, Moses' mother. And she brings her back, and, and Miriam or, uh, Pharaoh's daughter says to Moses' mother, Amram says, or excuse me, Jochebed says, I will, uh, I'll pay you if you'll nurse the child. How about that for a child welfare program? So now that's what happens. And for the next three to four years, she nurses this child until the time comes when she would wean him and hand him back over into Pharaoh's home to Pharaoh's daughter, where, she, where now Moses would be raised for the next 37 years and influenced by all the Egyptian culture. Yes, he had all the advantages of education, but he also had all the disadvantages of a culture that didn't fear God. We see this story in a deeper way that's found in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read these verses for just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, here's the short story of what I just told you. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What did Moses' parents impress on him that made the difference for him to choose to go with the people of God than rather choose and embrace the fame and fortune of Egypt? The first thing that I see right there is this. They had a faith. They were confident in God. Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, instilled in Moses a confidence in God. We see it right here in this opening verse, in verse 23. It says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. They hid him by faith. Their confidence was in God. Even though everything else said there was no reason to have confidence, they knew God, and they put their confidence in God. The NIV says it like this, by faith Moses' parents hid him for three three months. You know, this 23rd verse says that they did this really for two reasons. We'll get to those here in a moment. But first, the couple, Amram and Jochebed, believed that God had given them this child. They also believed that God would take care of this child. So they instilled the same kind of faith in their children so that when we get to verse 24, we already see the influence it now has on Moses because it says this. In verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Something happened when Moses began to realize who he was and who the God of Israel was and who the God of the Hebrews was, who the God of the world was. They, that he began to see something about the faithfulness in his biological parents that caused him to say, I'm going to trust God. So it goes from by faith Moses' parents to by faith Moses in just two verses. When it became impossible to hide Moses in their home, their faith would be severely tested. But it was their faith that sustained them. Jochebed knew that God was in control. See, because parents, we can know that we impress a faith into our children that will make a difference. Paul told Timothy in his second letter in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Let me give you as parents five things that I know set apart the difference between those who transcend in their faith from their youth to a young adulthood versus those who do not. The first is this. They have parents that have a high importance of faith. They have parents who will say, as for me and our house, we're going to serve the Lord. Mom, Dad, I really don't feel like going to church today. I know you don't, but we're going to go to church. <laughs> they have, when there are parents that have a high importance of faith, Those children of those parents are the ones that are identified in sociological studies that transcend from generation to generation in faith. 
When Moses and Jochebed said, it's so important that this boy live, we're going to build a, a basket and we're going to float this basket and we're going to get some inter intervention here as well. They did everything they could. It did something to Moses and it does something to every generation. The second thing I would say is, is that when you see a child who grows up from a, in, a, in, a, in a Christian environment and transcend into adulthood to lead in that environment, what we found is if they can simply learn to read their Bible and pray, there's a major, there's a major marker. But there's more to that in, in this. Because that's so important today. Because right now we have kids who are learning how to discern the Bible through the culture instead of the culture through the Bible. We need a generation of godly parents who will say, learning Scripture is so important because what it does is it gives me a worldview that is different than the worldview that's coming at them all the time. And when we get that worldview that's coming at us that's not from the Scripture, and we don't know the Scripture, we interpret the Scripture from the worldview instead of the worldview, the, excuse me, the culture from the, uh, we interpret the Scripture from the culture instead of the culture from the Scripture. And that's why it's important that they learn that. And when they do learn that, they transcend. Not only that, but they need to, we need to know that when our kids have more and more experiences with God, they overcome their doubts. Mm -hmm. Every kid has a doubt about different things and, and um, concerning God. For example, God, if you loved us so much, why would you let my grandma die? Mm -hmm. Lord, if you loved us so much, why would you let my father leave our family? God, if you really loved us, why would you say to one army, go and war against another army in the Old Testament? All of us, when we're growing up trying to know and discern and get to know God more, have these kinds of questions. But what we know is, is that whenever those same people who have those doubts encounter God, when they have an encounter with God in an altar or in the Word or in their home, every one of those encounters overshadowed their doubts. So the more experiences we can give our kids with the Lord, the more they are like to, likely to transcend in their faith. Because you can have intellectual doubts, but your experience tells you differently. So when I encounter God, I know God in a way that even what I don't understand yet makes sense. Lastly, I would say it on this, that we see kids that transcend when they participate in ministry. It kind of comes back to what your pastor said there at the outset of the prayer time. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And when we do that, we get a chance to live out the image of God that we're created in in such a way that takes on a meaningfulness and as parents, it's never too late to demonstrate that influence. Romans 8 and 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who, called, who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And that leads to my final point that I want to make this morning. And that is this, not only did, uh, did uh, Moses have a commitment to God's life, but, or excuse me, a confidence about their, about their faith in God, but they had a commitment to what God's plan was for Moses' life. And they had the courage to do what was right. Let me say it like this. 
Moses' parents saw that the child was beautiful. What do you see when you see your children? When you look at your children, what do you see? I know that in our own eyes, they're beautiful. But what do you see? I think Moses and Amram, excuse me, Amram and Jochebed. I'm getting more names mixed up today than you can imagine. But I believe that Amram and Jochebed, maybe when they were holding Moses, maybe while she's burping him after she's nursed him, and she says, I believe you're going to be the one that Joseph talked about that's going to lead us out of this bondage in Egypt. I believe you're going to be that man of faith that's going to make the difference and change the world. Is that what you see when you see this generation? I believe that we need to open our eyes and see what the potentials are of what God wants to do in this generation. I know that God has a great plan, and I know that he's not done with his church. He's coming for his church, but he's not done with his church at all. And we need to be ready and knowing that God is at work in this generation. This couple believed that God intended to do something great, and I believe that God wants us to believe that he wants to do something great through our generation. Sometimes our kids don't grow up to be spiritual giants because we don't expect them to be spiritual giants. I'm saying to us, we should believe and we should understand because God created them and he purposed them. And we need to be committed to God's plan for their lives. And to do that, we have to have the courage to do what's right. It's seen in this story that they had the courage to do what's right. Moses' parents, it says, were not afraid of the king's edict in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. In essence, what Moses' parents did was not technically legal. But it led it at the, excuse me, uh, it was functionally not legal, but technically it was. They put him in the water. They just put him in the water not to die. They didn't float him down the river. They stuck him in the reeds. You know, they, they just had the courage to do the right thing. Sometimes we need to demonstrate that courage. And when we demonstrate that courage, our kids see that courage. And they go, that's something I respect. And it makes an incredible difference in the lives of those children and their families. In 2002, Laura and I had moved to Springfield, Missouri from Macon, Georgia. We had been there for, uh, excuse me, the year 2000, we'd been there for two years and in 2002, one day, I, Laura and I got into a, um, a debate. <laughs> And um, I was certain I was right. What I learned is that you can be right, but you can also be dead right. <laughs> and during that, in the, in, during that disagreement, I really raised my voice and I spoke harshly. It was wrong. I knew it was wrong, but I was mad. I was frustrated. I walked out of the den. Uh, my kids were watching this whole episode. I walked out of the den through the galley in our kitchen. I was walking through the galley. There's a little plastic stool there sitting in front of the pantry. Laura being 5'3", she couldn't reach without that stool. And I walked by and I kicked that stool. In anger, I didn't realize how angry I was. The adrenaline was flowing in me. That thing flew across the kitchen, hit the corner of the brand new refrigerator and put a dent in it for me to remember it by every time I saw it. I kept walking. I 
steamed all the way down the, the uh, hallway down into our bedroom and I closed the door and I was replaying in my mind why I was right and she was wrong and how mad I was that she wasn't agreeing with me and God said Jay what are you doing get out there and make this right and I walked out and I found Laura I said honey would you sit down with me here in the den and I could tell she didn't want to but she did and I sat down on the hearth with Laura and I took our we took our children and put them on the sofa in front of us and I turned to Laura and I said Laura what I did was wrong I disrespected you by what I was saying and the way I was saying it not only did I commit that wrong against you I committed that wrong against our children I committed that wrong against God that's not what he would have me to do could you ever find it in your heart to forgive me and she said yes Jay I forgive you tears were streaming down my face and I looked at our children and I said they were all probably between the ages of 5 and 15 at this moment I said I'm really sorry what your father just did is not the way to handle this and God told me that what I did was wrong and I needed to make this right could you find it in your heart to forgive your father for what he did in front of you to your mother and to your mother in front of in front of God and they're all looking at me just you know and my son looks up at me he's about nine years old at the eight or eight years old at the moment he says dad you're not that bad <laughs> <laughs> And we all got together as a family and we prayed. Looking back on it, that was the single most important thing I've ever done as a parent. Nothing I've ever done has been more important than that. Because I taught them how to own sin and make it right. And in that moment, they found that everything that I said thereafter matched what my practice was going to be. When I say one thing and I do another, it creates a confusion point. And when I, as a parent, own my wrong, I was teaching my children how to own their own wrongs. And I was realizing at later time that I was teaching them how to alleviate the, the shame and the guilt that comes when I wrong someone. And I was eliminating from them the pain of rejection and frustration and anger that they would have at me because of the way I treated their mother. I was teaching them about what Jesus did for us on the cross. And in that moment, there was a transition of faith that transcends from generation to generation. And I believe today, largely because of the, the, the faith that Laura and I would try to do our best to live out, you know, in public in front of our children to say we're going to be true to what we say I believe it was a difference maker for them would you stand with me in this room today before your pastor comes I want to encourage you with a thought there are three things that I tried my best to do over the years and even to this day and Laura's a lot better at it than I am. But we committed this as a family. That we were going to touch our children physically in an affirming way as often as we could. 
come up, put our arms around our kids, hug our kids. I love that about your pastors. They do that with their children. They do that with you. They do that with us. That affirming touch, God designed it to be there. I began to realize that if I didn't do that for my three daughters, as a father, in a secure and safe way, they naturally might try to seek it out from someone else, and they may be very selfish in the way they would try to touch them. So we would try to touch them as often as we could in an affirming way. Sometimes as I would travel, I wouldn't have the opportunity to be there. It might simply be a phone call or a text message. But I tried to touch their heart in some way. Likewise, we would try to express God's love and our love for them every day. And sometimes that was uh, through gifts. It's okay to give gifts to your kids. But gifts aren't the only way. We need to verbally tell them. I've talked to so many kids over the years who've never heard the words, I love you, from their parents. Maybe it's just a generational thing. It's a cultural thing. But I'm saying to you, break the culture. Do what, do what God teaches us to do. Express his love for us and our love for them. And then the third thing that we would try to do is that we would try to compliment them as often as we could. We got a chance to discipline them, but I didn't want them to always think that I was disciplining them. I only paid attention to what they did wrong. I wanted to catch them doing the right thing. Sometimes that was challenging. Laura would give them 60 bucks. They'd go to the mall and buy a pair of jeans. They have holes in them, come back. And I'm like, you can't buy jeans without holes in them? <laughs> I changed that. It's like, those are the greatest jeans I've ever seen. How did they even get the holes in those things? <laughs> Seventh graders, <laughs> you brush your teeth today. Way to go. <laughs> you know, th there's a reality that comes when you... TLC, touch, love, compliment from generation to generation. And when you live that authentic faith in front of your kids, they'll catch it. They may not, they know you're not perfect. They just know that you know that there is a God who is. And if you'll go to him, he'll make it right. Father, in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray God that you will speak to a generation that has an incredible influence in this room today over every child that comes through these doors, some that have no parents of influence, and we become the spiritual parent. And that's a good thing. And God, I pray, Lord, that you will cause us as a generation to think, Lord, today is the day for me to act and live that kind of influence. Some in this room have prodigal sons and daughters, and they're worried, what did I do wrong? Oh, Lord. It's not about yesterday. It's about today. And God, I pray, Lord, if there's something that needs to be made right, give them the courage to do it. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you will cause them to pick up the phone and express your love for that kid. Even though they're in their 30s. And let them know that they're loved. And no matter where they go, they always will be. And God, when we get a chance to do that, we're being very much like you. And God, I pray, Lord, that Woodland Church will have such an influence in this community 
that Father, that there would be a, a revival, if you would, oh God, of hunger, of love for our children, so that the words of the prophet are true that you'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers and that a generation will be known that way in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. joining us today for Woodland Church and our YouTube channel. I hope you'll take a moment and click that subscribe button and also click the notifications bell so that you'll know when new things are posted. We're always putting new material up so that you can be a part of everything that's going on. We want to share those with you and we hope that they will encourage you and strengthen you in your faith as you watch. You can also find out more about Woodland Church by going to our website at woodland.church. You can find out all about us and also upcoming events. Again, thank you for joining us today.